This episode is brought to you by Griefline, Australia's national service that offers free non-crisis support to anyone experiencing grief or facing any type of loss. Griefline provides a compassionate space for people to explore and express their grief without judgment, no matter where you're at in your grief journey. If you are struggling and need extra support or want to know how to support someone who is coping with loss, visit griefline.org.au. listening to Good Morning, the podcast talking all things grief with honesty and humour. Welcome back to the Good Morning podcast. We are your hosts, Sal and Im, and we are coming in hot with an incredible conversation for you today with a world-renowned neurologist and author, Dr. Lisa Shulman. Before we get into today's conversation, Im, how are you? How was your birthday? It was all right. Look, not going to lie, birthdays are hard. Like they I find hard. the birthday is really hard. And as you, as you all very well know, after just having had your mum's birthday as well, mm. um, there's just something about birthdays. There really is. God, it sounds like a film, doesn't it? Forget there's something <laughs> about Mary. There's something about birthdays. They're just um, like, they're just a little bit shit when your person's not here. Like yeah. they're just a little bit shit and they're forever going to be a little bit shit now that they're not here. Just that one call that you want, you know? I know your mum really made the effort with your birthday as well. And my mum always did mm. too. And it's just that, yeah, that that feeling of something missing. And yeah, yeah. Well, that person that, you know, brought you into the world as well. You Definitely. Know? You know, you think about them a lot because they birthed you, you know, it's, it's, of course, it's a, it's a big, it's a big, big thing. It's a biggie, but. I survived it. And I feel like it is always what we say, the lead up is often like the anticipation is often harder than the actual day itself. Mm -hmm. Um, But I did manage to enjoy it as well. So yes, that whole of grief and joy coexisting is true. (laughs) It can happen. It really can. And like you say, like sometimes it is the week leading up to it. You think, oh my God, it's coming. I'm dreading it. Like you feel exhausted, you feel tired. And then on the day itself, it's almost like you've done that grieving in the lead up. And you're kind of like, okay, I can face this today. But, yeah. who, you know, you never know, do you? You just never know how it's going to feel. And the other thing is I'm starting to actually feel old. On <laughs> 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 the flip side of it all, it's like, oh, actually, I'm getting older. I'm feeling older. I look in the mirror, I'm like, okay, yep, aging is <laughs> has begun. <laughs> People who are older who are listening to this are probably going, shut the fuck up. Like, really? <laughs> Sorry, but, yeah. Give me my Couple mind. it with grief face and it's, you know, it's the grief fun face. times. Oh, it really <laughs> is. Like I just don't look like my old self anymore. So coming to terms with that, that's a grief, letting go of how, how I used to look. Yeah. But other than that, it was good. And I've got a big trip coming up. I'm going to the UK for about a month, which will be good and hard traveling with a toddler and yeah, it's just been, it's been a bit weird. Cause I was like thinking it'd be good to go and do a little Euro trip while I'm there, like four mm-hmm. nights away somewhere in Europe. And then I was thinking maybe Italy would be good. And then like, I got hit with this weird grief. I don't know if you've ever felt this Sal, but it was like, I don't want to go someplace that's really meaningful to my mom. If she's not alive anymore to know that I'm there, it would just feel weird. And I was like, I can't actually do that while she's not here anymore. 
because mm-hmm. I can't tell her that I'm going to be there. Like it was just this really strange grief that I hadn't experienced before, probably because of COVID. I haven't really gone away internationally um, since before she died. So that was weird. I remember one of our listeners, um, Kat, spoke about this a while ago. She she sent us a message about feeling guilt for going somewhere that her parents really loved. And, oh, yes. And, yeah, I'm like a guilt out. that she was going there without them. And yes. I, get, I get that a lot in Australia because my mum came here. She really loved it here. Yeah. Um, and every time I travel somewhere here and I just think, oh, I just wish that I could tell her about this and share this with her. And like, yeah, I know what you mean. It's... um. But then I think maybe you've got to go and and have a good time for both of you and like channel her energy when you're there, right? Yeah. Well, this is something Chris, so my stepdad, um, pulled me up on when I was like, she's just not here. I can't like go without her being here or knowing that I'm there. And he's like, she's there with you. I'm like, okay, fair enough. Yeah, right. We know that <laughs> from all the work that we do on the pod and all the mediums that we've spoken to, like they are still there with us and it's almost like, yeah, go and feel her around and she would be loving every minute of it. She'd be like, send me photos of what you're eating for breakfast and literally like every single room of the hotel that you're staying in. She was just, she would froth on my holidays and live vicariously through me. Um, so yeah, it'll, it'll be sad that I can't share them with her in that way, but yeah, weird holiday grief. That's what we'll call it. <laughs> How are you, Sal? I I've been I've been pretty griefy recently um, as it was my mum's birthday um, recently. So that was a really big grief milestone, you know, on that note of there's something about birthdays, you know, (laughs) that's our movie guys coming soon. Um, (laughs) But yeah, it's always a big, a big griefy milestone. Like my birthday, I find hard her birthday. I find hard. Like, I mean, God, there are so many aren't there, but, um, but it was actually the lead up that felt heavier than the day itself. So kind of like what you experienced as well. Um, But actually after this conversation, which we'll get into in a minute, I have been doing something creative and taking up a new hobby, which you are going to laugh at me. Oh my God, tell me. (laughs) Wait, wait, I'm trying to think of what it could be. No, I don't know. Tell me. So anyone who knows me well knows It's going to be something granny, isn't it? Yes. (laughs) (laughs) A lot of my friends call me Granny Sal, but um, I have, I'm learning how to crochet. Stop! <laughs> I can't laugh, actually, I can't laugh because I I did crocheting after mum died, but like, also it's very Granny. But can we also say that crochet is very in this season on the catwalks? <laughs> crochet is a big fashion trend for spring, summer. I uh, love so, it, new you know, could do me it could do me do me good um so but yeah we talk about this with our guests so we should probably get on to um today's guest actually Dr Lisa Shulman who as we mentioned is a world-leading neurologist and the topic we're discussing today is something that loads of you experience and it's one of those things that you don't always realize is related to grief but grief brain ah uh, yeah the good old grief brain. We've I think our fair share of it. <laughs> we have. And I think so many of us experience brain fog, like trouble remembering things. We can't focus and just generally feel like days. But although it's a massive part of the grief experience, like we feel like we're going crazy sometimes, can't we? And we, we don't always know it's like related to grief. Yes. I was honestly so shocked at how much it impacted me. Like 
my memory. I just felt so foggy for ages as well. Like I just wondered if it was ever going to lift or go away. You feel like a changed person sometimes, don't you? And I know like we still have our moments where we feel foggy, especially when we're like having a really griefy period. And I feel like when one of us like forget something we just like blame grief brain but I don't know how long we can keep that up for (laughs) we do don't we every every time we forget something we're like uh yeah grief brain I feel like we can we can use that one forever you reckon this is our our permission to you guys listening as well just use it for as long as you want really because what Lisa says like it does actually impact you for a long time there you go, the grief brain card. But yeah. anyway, on to Lisa. So Lisa's husband, Bill, died in 2012 from cancer. And in the lead up to his death and afterwards, even though she's a neurologist, she was actually really surprised by how much her grief impacted her cognitive function, wasn't she, In Yeah, and if that's a neurologist saying that, well, then it's understandable why the rest of us would wonder what the bloody hell is going on with our brains. Exactly, and her experience with grief brain, it actually inspired her to then research the neurology of grief and write a book exploring the science behind grief, loss, and the brain, which is what we're going to be discussing today. Yeah, and I also love, like, I just love how Lisa explains why grief brain happens in a way it's just so easy for us non-sciencey people to understand (laughs) like it was she just explained it so well didn't she she really really did and she also shares like how the brain responds to trauma and why we experience things like dissociation and anxiety after a traumatic loss and also interestingly the role of dreams in processing grief which I found fascinating yes so guys if you're feeling like you've got scrambled eggs for brains give this show a listen. It's such a goodie. And before we jump in, don't forget our latest batch of affirmation cards are selling fast. So they're a brilliant way to give yourself some extra support on a griefy day, or it's a perfect gift for for a mate that's grieving. You can find the link in our show notes. And quickly, if you've enjoyed the pod, we'd love it if you could leave us a rating or a review so it helps other people find it. Now on with the show. Dr. Lisa Shulman, welcome. It's great to have you join us today. It's not often that we're joined by a world-leading neurologist. Well, thanks for having me. It's a pleasure to be with you guys. Your excellent book, Healing Your Brain After Loss, a neurologist's perspective on loss, grief, and our brain, opens with the statement that you expected grief to be unbearable sadness, but actually it wasn't that at all. It was profound instability. And I think a lot of us and a lot of our listeners, and Im and I included, can really, really relate to that. Well, you know, uh, I really uh, thought that uh, I would know more than the average person about what it was like to go through difficult times, because as a neurologist, I treat people with serious illnesses. Uh, And so... um, I just, I guess, I just expected that uh, I would have maybe a little edge uh, in managing very, uh, a terrible loss, the loss of my husband. Um, But uh, it couldn't have been further from the truth. It turned out, you know, so often in life, we don't know what it's like to be in other people's shoes, really. And uh, the the problem was by no means, as you say, um, overwhelming sadness and sorrow. The problem I didn't expect was waking up uh, after my husband was gone and into what felt like a an alien world. 
-hmm. It took me a really long time, to be honest, uh, to even understand uh, the um, difficulties I was having because, as we'll get into in terms of the brain's response, Mm -hmm. uh, the, the goal of the brain when you are under such a uh, tr uh, emotional trauma is to keep you highly functional. That's the, mm -hmm. that's the goal. The brain wants to keep us functional so we survive through catastrophe, through difficult times. And uh, it even fools us because we do remain functional. You know, we can get up in the morning and get ourselves to work and do what we need to do, go to the supermarket and so forth. Uh, there are odd things that are happening all along. And sometimes you sort of, in a, in a glimmer of recognition, realize that there's something odd about what you might have done during that period of time. But it's almost like, you know, your brain doesn't want you to dwell on that much because it would be so calamitous. Mm. You know, when I said I, I went to, uh, you can go to the supermarket, you know, uh, for, for a fair amount of time, I went to the supermarket, but uh, I would purchase all the food as if I was per buying for two mm. and purchasing things that I didn't even normally care for, but we're really the things that Bill would have. Um, now, you know, I mean, maybe some part of me thought that is a little strange, but I really didn't dwell on it. Mm. There's many examples of that. And I, I, I think it's quite interesting. I don't know if you can uh, identify with it. Absolutely. And a lot of our listeners actually reach out to us and it's a big conversation within the sort of grief community that we're part of. The whole sort of feeling really confused and foggy and, and grief, grief brain, as people call it, and can absolutely relate to that. I think for about 10 months, I would say I couldn't function normally and I found it really difficult to retain information, even just to construct a sentence, to concentrate like it, it really impacted me. Like my, my mum died by suicide. So it was very, very traumatic. Um, so it's taken a long, long time. There's so much we want to get into with you, but yeah, I can definitely relate to that. And I think it is a surprise because just to our sort of earlier um, conversation on the fact that you thought grief was going to be, you know, this all consuming sadness, but it, but it mm. really wasn't this, it was almost like this kind of- All of these other things. <laughs> all of these other things were much more prevalent. And I think it takes a lot of us by surprise. Do you think that our brains fool us? Because if they didn't fool us, you know, we weren't able to kind of get on with daily life. We just, it would just be absolutely, it'd be too impossible, wouldn't it? Well, it would be, uh, I mean, to the point is that it would, one couldn't survive under yeah. the circumstances. You know, uh, you uh, in, a, in, in a catastrophe, uh, our brains are hardwired to help us survive a catastrophe. Mm -hmm. So that uh, if you think, if you start to think about the experience of, of the emotional trauma of loss from that new perspective, and the key phrase that I like to, like to always um, point out is that from the brain standpoint, uh, a traumatic loss is a threat to our survival. Mm. 
And we don't usually think about it from that standpoint, from a cultural uh, perspective, but the brain does not have a specific region or mechanism to handle uh, the loss of one's mom, the loss of a spouse. Uh, in, there's no specific uh, process for that. Those pathways uh, are the very same pathways. The pathways that deal with that kind of emotional trauma are the very same pathways in the brain that deal with any form of emotional trauma. Uh, whether we're talking about uh, the, um, you know, a, a, an assault, a physical assault, uh, a, a terrible uh, financial loss, a loss of a job suddenly, a uh, breakup uh, or divorce, uh, you know, all of those things which are admittedly very, very traumatic events, a terrible new diagnosis, serious new diagnosis, all very serious events. And from the brain's perspective, all are treated very similarly as a threat to our survival. Mm -hmm. So to get into a little bit of the brain function story, and I'll just sort of uh, try to, um, you know, touch on the main features, uh, the part of the brain that is involved in dealing with the threat to one's survival is the primitive parts of the brain. And uh, more specifically, that we call that the limbic system and the part of the limbic system that is involved in um, surveilling the environment for threats is called the amygdala. Mm -hmm. uh, so, and, and some people call it the fear center. Uh, so the fact is that that primitive part of our brain, you know, that not just us, but all mammals, we all have those mechanisms uh, more and more takes over and the advanced, the evolutionary advanced part of our brain, the cerebral cortex, that covering with all the wrinkles that we see, um, that is becomes uh, not as predominant. The fear center starts to predominate in a, the setting of a threat to one's survival in the setting of a serious emotional trauma. And, you know, all of us who have experienced a significant loss of a loved one know that it's not the kind of thing that is a short-term problem and then things just go back to baseline. Instead, mm -hmm. life is filled with triggers. Yes. You know, a photo, you go to a restaurant uh, that you were at with the person that you've lost. Um, one thing after another is occurring around you. Well, think about it. Every time that happens, and it happens very, very often when you're close to somebody you've lost, mm -hmm. every time it's like that fear center, the alarm goes off again and again. And again, and each time the alarm goes off, it does more than just strengthen the primitive part of our brain, the fear center. It sends out a cascade of signals across the brain and then across the body with all sorts of hormones uh, to get us ready to, um, to protect ourselves. 
because that's the point. The point is that, you know, uh, the, the brain is perceived a threat. And so uh, in order to protect yourself, what's going to be necessary? Well, your mind's going to have to be very sharp, sharp for danger and risk. Uh, your heart is going to have to have a lot of blood so that you can, you're ready to fight or flight, of course, or run. Uh, your lungs need a lot of blood so you can, and you start to breathe faster. Your heart rate speeds up. Your muscles need more blood so that you can run. Uh, and the problem is that that doesn't happen once or twice or three times. It's happening every day numerous times. Incredibly, people have done research where they looked for those hormones, those um, hormones that are involved in the stress response, the stress hormones, looked in the body fluids of people who sustained the loss of a loved one six months or a year later and found higher concentrations of those stress hormones all way beyond the time of the um, of the original loss. And, and sadly, actually, uh, studies show that in the early period of time after loss, uh, the uh, actual uh, incidence of uh, illness goes up mm. because it's almost like you're having a stress test over and over. And stress so can impact our immune system, can't it? And all sorts of things. There's all sorts of bodily triggers. So when this, this when, is so, I just want to jump in quickly. Sorry, Sal, before you go into the next part, this is so interesting. And I love the way that you describe it. So it's easily accessible for everyone to digest as well. It's amazing. Um, I can sometimes feel like when I get triggered, I can feel like a rush through my body. Is that a common thing? Like, it's almost like I can feel that alert getting set off and the, like the stress hormones rushing through my body. Does that make sense? Like a shakiness well, absolutely. almost. Absolutely. And, you know, the more um, self-insight and self-perception you have, the more you will start to pick up on that. Uh, you know, I think, um, you know, I think, you know, it, it's a feeling of, um, can be a feeling of uh, intense anxiety, a feeling yeah. of panic, a feeling of the need to get, get me out of here when you're in a bad a, a situation that is provoking those uh, emotions. And one of the key things is oftentimes when you are feeling triggered like that, again, because the fear center is driving the show and the the coherent mind is secondary, you can't put two and two together. Mm -hmm. uh, I, I wonder if you guys can um, uh, endorse this. I can think of so many times where I would get the feeling that you just described him and I would not be able to put together two plus two, meaning, oh, I am feeling that way because this just happened and therefore I should calm myself down. Instead, I would just sort of be on autopilot. Yes, and it snowballs. And then because it is such a physical response, I definitely start to spiral into I'm dying, there's something wrong with me, I'm having a 
a heart attack or, you know, it, it turns into something worse in my mind than rather having that logical conversation with myself and being like, this mm. is a response to emotional trauma and I've been triggered in this situation and what's happening to my body is, is normal. And I can relate to that as well. And it's almost like my you know, my heart's pounding and I can feel it in my body, but it's all, also like I can't concentrate at all. And I, I had it recently, actually. I was in a gym class and I was feeling really triggered and stressed and I just couldn't concentrate on the instructions. I knew I was going through the motions, but I wasn't there. Why, why does that happen? Why does... Why do we kind of feel like we are, we can't concentrate and that it's hard to pay attention or that our memory just feels like it's just gone? Like you said um, earlier, like everything's firing off in the brain and obviously we get that physical response. And so what is causing kind of the, yeah, the fog and the, and the mist that we can feel? Okay, there's a, there's a lot of good reasons for that, uh, Sal. Uh, you know, you have to think about the fact that compared to before you experience loss, that a lot of the real estate of the brain has been taken over mm -hmm. to manage all of the stress all the time. So, I mean, needless to say, if you know, you're not going to have as much space to uh, be able to be as uh, sharp. Uh, mm -hmm. But one of the things that has been shown clearly uh, with research, uh, sometimes with um, animal models of stress, where you can actually then, of course, um, look at the brain much more carefully, the actual wiring of the brain, is that incredibly, when I was referring previously to the idea that the primitive brain is becoming predominant and stronger, while the um, advanced cerebral cortex, the more the seat of judgment is becoming weaker. What these studies show is that over time, the actual connections between the um, primitive brain and the advanced brain are being weakened. The actual neural pathways, the nerve pathways are becoming weakened as the um, the stress center is the fear center is being strengthened. And we call that process neuroplasticity. Hmm. Neuroplasticity is, is very simply um, that um, your, your brain is constantly being remodeled and rewired based on experience. So, you know, for example, if you were going to take up um, a musical instrument uh, the more you play it, you practice, 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 and you are actually creating uh, quite quickly, actually, uh, new neural pathways that are allowing you to go back to the instrument and play better every time you, you practice. Um, but it's, it's quite the opposite here. Uh, adverse experience, bad experience can rewire the brain in a, um, in a in like bad neuroplasticity in a bad way. Mm -hmm. uh, and your, your um, judgment and um, insight and coherent thought uh, are increasingly being sidelined. Uh, and that ends up being a slippery slope over time. We, have something that we call grief bombs, which are 
kind of like the like the waves of grief when you get that trigger when the kind of the kind of intense grief washes over you if that's happening a lot and you're getting triggered left right and center then those neural pathways are getting strengthened and strengthened is that's what what's happening and that's why you might feel like the sustained feeling of just confusion and fog and and you're you know not quite sure what's going on it's because they're they're getting strengthened in the brain the pathways are getting stronger and stronger you're it's promoting this bad neuroplasticity that uh is ends up being a barrier uh and is going to prolong um the um healing process let's pause for a moment to talk about today's sponsor griefline which is a not-for-profit support service for people struggling with grief They're on a mission to normalise grief by having courageous conversations that help to change the way Australian society thinks and talks about grief. We absolutely love Griefline here at Good Morning and as well as their national helpline, Griefline has loads of incredible free support services like support forums, grief education and resources and even corporate and volunteer training programs and workshops. Through these programs and services, Griefline aims to normalise the grief experience by alleviating the pressure many feel to grieve in a certain way and within a set time frame, which can be common, can't it, Sal? It really can. The old time frames of grief. (laughs) It's so important for people to know that there's no right or wrong way to grieve. We cannot stress that enough and we say it all the time, but there really is no right or wrong way to do this. And Griefline is doing such important work to break down the stigma that is still unfortunately associated with grief by encouraging conversations about the topic because grief isn't an illness or a disorder that needs to be treated or cured. And we can't stress this enough. And the roller coaster of emotions and thoughts we experience when grieving is a natural human response to loss. But sometimes they can be really, really challenging to navigate and we all need a little bit of help to make sense of it all sometimes so that's where Griefline steps in. If you're needing extra support in your grief you can book a call with a specially trained volunteer at a time that is convenient to you or visit griefline.org.au to access their support programs and services. Now back to the show. I'd love to know I'm sure obviously everybody's grief and trauma is individual Mm. but how long is this supposed to last? Because I know for me, definitely the first year I was dealing with this, but is it common for it to be such a long period of time? Obviously when the, the loss is very traumatic and sudden, it's is it longer that because of that? Or yeah, what's have you yeah, heard about the common kind of time frames for this sort of thing? Well, it's, it's extremely common for um, this to be uh, a very lengthy process. Yeah. Uh, you know, I think that, um, you know, I, I hesitate to um, pathologize, in other words, you know, to make something into a uh, abnormality uh, mm-hmm. when it uh, is in fact not terribly surprising based on the personal nature of the loss to an individual. We cannot be in somebody else's shoes and possibly understand what to one person might not be as big a loss, but another, it's overwhelming. Mm. Uh, and uh, based on one's life uh, and, um, and, and, and history, a life history, you know, um, it, some of these losses are, are just vast and 
therefore, yes, it's not at all surprising that it's going to be a very long process. Uh, sometimes you hear, uh, I, so I don't really believe in the concept of, of stages. Uh, I don't think that healing is ever um, complete. I, you know, I think instead it's literally a lifelong process of, um, of, of dealing with what has been uh, a very uh, traumatic experience uh, and coming to terms with it and living with it in a more productive and constructive way. Um, but, you know, you, one does hear that there's, um, you know, discussions about um, grief after something like six months that then is called things like complicated grief or prolonged grief disorder, these kinds of things. Uh, and, and I would uh, make it a lot simpler than that, uh, frankly, and say, you know, the main thing is whether you can function or not in your life. Uh, mm. And... And, and that you're showing signs, even if it's gradual, of improvement over time. Mm -hmm. um, but I, I, I don't dwell on the idea of um, being, I think we should all be very forgiving of ourselves. The fact that yes. we, have, <laughs> we have some, you know, it might be a birthday or something of that, or holiday, and you have a, uh, you have a, a regression, one might say. You know, you you are not doing as well again, and we're right? not we're not forgiving of ourselves at all. I think we can really judge ourselves. There's a someone that wrote into us, and they were three months into their grief, and they said that they're having a really hard time, that they're not getting back to normal. Three months in, like it's yeah, we're our, not not kind to ourselves in those situations. Exactly, and we're of a similar thought to you Lisa we don't believe in sort of the stages to it you know it is it's an ongoing process and you you might have moments where you feel like you've regressed slightly and that's absolutely okay and we would love to know your experience how did you help yourself kind of move through the feelings of confusion and fog and, and and everything that comes with grief was there anything particular that's really helped you or as you were doing your research you found to be really beneficial for you personally yeah I, I think that the imagery that um I set out of the um weakened connections mm -hmm. that have occurred in the brain due to this bad neuroplasticity um is um something we can build upon because what our goal is, is to strengthen those connections again. Mm -hmm. And what I mean by that is that um, they, the, there are many defense mechanisms that the brain cleverly uses to, um, to hide or suppress difficult emotions, difficult memories from our perception. Uh, but uh, those, um, no matter how much you try to sweep it under the rug <laughs> um, with uh, denial or um, repression or um, dissociation, uh, all these defense mechanisms may be used, but um, they continue to um, cause turbulence in our lives, that they are hidden, but they're not gone. Mm -hmm. And therefore, um, they, for example, um, I focus in my book Before and After Loss on uh, one of the chapters is on dreams. 
Uh, and dreams, which oftentimes increase in frequency or become more vivid after emotional trauma, uh, are one of the places where as much as much as much as the brain is trying to um, shunt that stuff away from us so that in our daily life we can still function, it's sort of leaking out uh, in a place like our dreams at night, as weird as they may be. Mm -hmm. uh, and so, you know, in, in the end, uh, we cannot heal uh, without getting back in touch with those difficult memories and difficult emotions. And by doing that, we are recreating and strengthening those connections between our uh, mind, the cerebral cortex, the seat of judgment, and the fear center. Anyone could even imagine that the more we strengthen that, the more capable that we're going to be when we experience a moment that's triggering, that at some point we may actually be able to say, aha, I'm feeling this way because it's one of those times mm. and uh, you know, uh, I'm going to manage it in such and such way, but it won't be as um, feel so out of control, which is a terrible feeling, right? Because mm. we've accessed those thoughts, we've accessed, you know, the, the, the fears, the memories. So we've got a bit of a head start in a sense. Right. And, and maybe, you know, maybe sometimes you don't have your wits about you so that you may not be able to say, I know exactly what has uh, caused this. Because um, sometimes it can be kind of obscure. Uh, somebody might make a remark and there's just something about it that has set you off a bit. Uh, and uh, but at least one could say, I, this isn't really like me. And, and so there must be something there that is um, causing a reminder and making me feel this way. And then you can go back to it. Now, you know, I, I personally believe that all of us who have experienced loss and then get involved in these discussions, podcasts, writing, journaling, uh, all sorts of creative, creative enterprises that focus on uh, grief or loss. Um, I think we are all um, endeavoring to do just that. Mm. We are using these uh, different approaches and strategies to uh, help ourselves heal. What do you think about that? I feel like I'm having a bit of a breakthrough listening to you talk. <laughs> like I have had anxiety for a long, long time, years, but all of these things that you're saying is also like the feelings of anxiety that I have is exactly the same. And then I'm now I'm thinking, is my anxiety from unprocessed emotional trauma? And I've just conditioned myself to be like this for years and years and years. I'm my mind is being blown right now. <laughs> is it is is what you're talking about similar to anxiety? So people who do have anxiety disorders, is something similar happening to the brain? Well, I mean, very often, I mean, it's like the, that's the realm of uh, therapists and say, psychologists, psychiatry, they're oftentimes looking for what was at the root of um, our behaviors and our neurotic tendencies and our anxiety yeah. and so forth. Now, I mean, there is also, you know, some um, 
genetics involved here, you know, in yeah. terms of having tendencies and vulnerabilities to depression or anxiety, but, you know, experience is a very large part of it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And you mentioned disassociation as well. I have experienced dissociation and I want to know if what I'm experiencing is the one that you're talking about, whereas sometimes I feel like the world around me isn't real and I feel so detached from things that are happening. Sometimes I'll look at my hands and they don't feel like my hands. I'll look at buildings and I can't, it just, it just feels like a very odd, strange world I'm living in. Is that the disassociation that you are talking about? Yeah, so um, the the definition of dissociation briefly is um, is a detachment from one's environment. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, I, I think that there is some. Um, so, so the type of dissociation that occurs in response or following trauma mm-hmm. uh, is oftentimes in the setting of one of these triggering events where um, the the brain uh, our brain is literally uh looking for an escape hatch uh in other words the the brain is so clever so brilliant that our brain knows before it's at the level of our consciousness this is going to be too much for us this Mm. is going to be overwhelming this is going to be emotionally overwhelming and we need to, we need to, we need to escape. Uh, and so in one case, you may have, like you say, a feeling of, you know, anxiety and panic, and you literally walk out the door uh, of a place. But in other situations, your uh, mind actually uh, turns off a bit and takes you away mm. for, it uh, could be seconds or a minute or so. Mm. Uh, and you wouldn't be you might not even be aware of what just happened. I'm really curious to know, have you ever done any research into what happens to the brain when somebody dies by suicide? Because I think it feels like it's it's kind of going against that survival kind of mode that we're in. Do you know what happens to the brain when somebody takes their life? Well, not, I mean, not uh, specifically, except mm. to say that there is research about um, you know, losses that are um, occur in more traumatic settings. Suicide would certainly be also in that mm. um, in that description of something that is particularly um, traumatic. And yeah. so there is some research about that. Now, it's not to say that that is um, different. Again, I want to emphasize that uh, from the brain standpoint, it there's the types of mechanisms we're talking about here, brain function, this is it, guys. This is how the brain responds to emotional trauma. Mm -hmm. However, the severity of the response is going to be more severe, more prolonged, uh, wreak more havoc in one's life when it's under those kinds of circumstances. So interesting. So interesting. And you mentioned earlier about dreams. And I just want to circle back on dreams for a moment, because I think they can be really, it can be really traumatic when we have a really vivid dream about them and we wake up and we're confused or we're stressed, you know, and it can feel so real. But is there a role that dreams have to play as well in this healing process or helping us move through the 
sort of what's going on in our brains is there, is there a role that the that dreams have to play a, a positive role well i, I think that the dreams are have are a huge uh opportunity for us mm. uh, because um you know i remember when i was writing my uh, my book uh before and after loss and i um i was thinking about you know, one of the most important things that you learn about writing is that you never want to, um, <clears throat> the, one of the big things you're taught is to show, not tell, when you're writing. Show, don't tell. And I do remember that um, when I was sitting there thinking, how could I show the um, this concept of um, how difficult emotions are suppressed uh, and how important it is to reconnect with them rather than just tell. Uh, and I had this epiphany. I went, oh, dreams, because I hadn't even considered it, which now seems ridiculous or absurd. I hadn't considered it, but I had been keeping a dream journal uh, because I did have very vivid dreams after um, the death of my husband. And I, it never even occurred to me, ridiculously, that that would be a source that I could use while I was writing the book. And then I went and got the dream journal. And, um, and then I started doing some research on dreams after trauma. It turns out that in the way I talked about how our brains are all wired similarly, we incredibly have very similar dreams to one another. Mm -hmm. There are a series of, um, of um, scenarios that are very common amongst people uh, who are dreaming, particularly dreaming after trauma. And sure enough, you know, there I am reading a book and I see that my dream journal is filled with um, dreams about travel disasters. That was mm -hmm. like the main topic. It was one dream after another where I would be traveling by bus, by train, by uh, airplane, and every dream was a terrible mishap would occur while I was traveling. And uh, there I am reading a book and it says right there, travel dreams are extremely um one of the common ar archetypes oh. uh there are some others you know like um, visitation dreams where the person who has gone comes back mm -hmm. uh apparently um in, it's rather common that the that the person you've lost uh says something reassuring about how they're doing there are certain kinds of scenarios that occur over and over to people. Mm -hmm. So the dreams have a very, um, have a great potential use. If just writing down one dream will, will not be helpful, <laughs> but if you keep a dream journal, and I can tell you for sure that it will feel like it is complete and utter nonsense when you're writing your dreams down because they never make any sense. Mm -hmm. um, and it's only when you have the benefit of some time lapse, you go back and read them and read them in sequence, 
when you can start to appreciate that there is a storyline there. And from that standpoint, you can use them as a way to reconnect with those suppressed memories and emotions, just the thing you need for healing. So interesting. And I wonder why, do you know why travel dreams are prevalent after trauma? That's. I mean, I, I mean, I, I, you know, one can make some interpretations, but one can't be sure, uh, you know, it's, uh, I guess the analogy I would make, but believe me, it's nothing more than an <laughs> analogy is, you know, that, you know, that your life, the path of your life, the journey of your life has been uh, very much uh, interrupted. Mm. And so that you, you know, in, in, in my in my book, I have um, that chapter, which briefly describes a number of dreams and then offers some interpretation. And, you know, for example, you know, in one, I'm, I'm on a, uh, a hike, I don't know where, and I don't know where I'm supposed to even go. I don't have a hotel reservation. I'm not carrying the right things with me. I mean, it's just like, it's a constant, you know, I, I, I'm, I go to the, the train station, but I don't have tickets. Everything is disrupted. Mm. I lose, I, lo I lost my baggage a thousand times in these dreams. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> <The> worst. <laughs> I, I remember having, I, I'm a very vivid dreamer all the time anyway I often remember my dreams I have a few a night I don't know what that means about my brain I don't want to know um but I remember having dreams after my mum died where I just couldn't get to her so many times I just yeah something would happen there would be I remember there was like natural disasters in my dream and I just whatever yeah for whatever reason I just couldn't get to her and I feel like it was symbolism mm -hmm. to what actually happened like I didn't couldn't get to her in time to stop you know, her dying. And I think, yeah, mm -hmm. it's a lot of processing happening in the brain, isn't there? Yes. You know, I mean, it, the, the studies show that some people um, do, many people do dream more and dream more vividly, but some people don't think that they are dreaming more at all. Mm -hmm. um, the fact is, of course, I mean, the most common question I get when I talk to uh, groups is that many people say that they never remember their dreams and what can they mm -hmm. do about that? And, um, you know, some of the, the key things is to keep a, um, a, a paper and pencil near your bed uh, that as soon as you awaken and have even the smallest thought to jot it down. Again, it could be a fragment, mm. but by reading the fragment in the morning, it very often will um, trigger more memories surrounding that fragment that you wrote down. And then once you add more, you can keep on going back uh, and in, elaborate. Very few of us are able to remember a dream from beginning to end. And, you know, so you just sort of capture a, a, a segment. I know journaling has really been a big part of the process for you and for us as well, kind of getting, you know, writing it out and talking it out in moments like this um, have been so helpful. And when we're doing things like talking it out and, and, and journaling, we're accessing those memories, aren't we? We're kind of like back to your point earlier about when you do tap into those memories and the thoughts and the fear and, you know, the difficult things, 
it helps sort of prepare you a bit and make you a bit stronger for when those triggers do hit. Well, there's a great advantage to journaling. Um, and that is that um, there it is on the um, written page and one can go back um, the next day or months later or even years later and look at what you wrote. Uh, and uh, number one, uh, when you look at it, sometimes you might say, that isn't really the way it happened. And then you can annotate it and get more in touch with the um, some of the true nature of the of the content. But in addition to that, when you go back quite a bit later and read what you wrote, you can then reflect on your own progress. Mm, yes, yes, I have um, an anger journal from the very early days because a lot of my grief was anger and guilt. And I've looked back at that and it is frightening <laughs> the space that I was in and the anger that I was feeling. I'm like, I didn't even know who that person is. It's, it's amazing to be able to go and reflect back and be like, actually, I've come a long, long way. Mm, definitely. Yeah. Lisa, it has been such a pleasure to have you join us today. Thank you so much for your time and for sharing your personal experience and your insights with us. I think we both, I think, have had quite a few light bulb moments throughout this chat, and we really hope our listeners will too. But before we go, I know a lot of our listeners are going to be wanting to pick up your book and find out more about your research. So where can listeners find you and your book? Right. Um, well, first of all, just thank you uh, both for inviting me to participate. It's been a real pleasure. Uh, and uh, my book uh, is uh, Before and After Loss, A Neurologist's Perspective on Loss, Grief, and Our Brain. Uh, and it could be found, of course, on Amazon <laughs> easily. Uh, and it was uh, published by Johns Hopkins University Press, so it can also be found on their website. And we can contest. It is a fascinating read. And I really love that it was full of your personal experiences and insights, as well as some of the research. It's a really great balance. So thank you for putting that out in the world. And thank you for joining us. And yeah, it's it's been a real treat. Thank you both so much. Thanks, Lisa. I am going to keep a notepad next to my bed now to log on my griefy dreams because I have some very weird ones. It's such a good idea. And uh, I cannot wait to hear what you actually piece together. <laughs> it's going to be a bloody novel, just you wait. And thanks to today's sponsor, Griefline. If you are struggling and need some extra grief support, you can call Griefline's national toll-free helpline on 1300 845 745 or visit griefline.org.au to access their support programs and services, which is linked in the show notes. Until next time, guys. Ciao. Ciao.